0: warning the following contains spoilers pertaining to the show and subject matter discussed also strong language and adult content may be included listener discretion is advised thank you sorry. The crowds on the subway were a nightmare. I was worried I wouldn't make it. Then I got all turned around when I came up on 44th Street. Lucky for us, all I had to do was look for the signature marquee with the simple logo, as well as the all-black theater itself.
1: It's kind of hard to miss. Especially since it's been here for so long. It's amazing they haven't made this a city landmark. (gasps) Quick! They're flashing the lights. We have to get in. You have the tickets, right?
0: Got them right here best seats in the house, but we better hurry. We got a couple of flights to hike.
1: All right, let's go. Uh, I love how dilapidated the opening set looks. If I didn't know any better, I'd think a disaster happened here earlier in the day.
0: The transformation still gets me every time. It really is a gorgeous theater. Definitely lives up to its namesake.
1: Shh. It's starting.
0: Here we go. All right, let's go.
1: Welcome to Stage Whisper. I'm your host, Hope Bird, and with me is my co-host, Andrew Cortez. Today
0: we're going to be discussing the blockbuster musical, The Phantom of the Opera.
1: So hurry and take your seats, it looks like the show is starting.
0: Hello, everyone. And welcome into today's performance of Stage Whisper. And welcome to our inaugural episode.
1: If you're a theater lover like we are, then you found yourself in the right place. We are here to talk about the many shows that we have had the amazing fortune to see, both on and off Broadway.
0: We plan to discuss not just the show, but its lasting impact and influence on the theater world as a whole.
1: And of course, share our own personal experiences with the shows themselves.
0: We hope to help create a community of theater lovers where we can not only discuss the great works we bear witness to, but also exchange our lasting personal moments that we have tied to these shows.
1: So with that, let's delve into our first show.
0: Quite possibly the most recognizable musical in the world, the Phantom of the Opera comes in as one of the most formidable shows in theater history. The show, with music by Lord Andrew Lloyd Webber and lyrics by Charles Hart, began its run in London in 1986. There it won the Olivier Award for Best Musical and Best Actor in a Musical for Michael Crawford, whom had originated the role of the Phantom.
1: The show then transferred to Broadway in 1988. It was directed by Hal Prince and produced by Cameron McIntosh. Other notable designers include sets in costume by Maria B. Jornson, choreography by Jillian Lynn, sound design by Martin Levan, and lights by Andrew Bridge.
0: The show would go on to win seven Tony Awards, including Best Musical, Best Direction for Hal Prince, and Best Leading Actor in a Musical, again for Michael Crawford, who was playing the Phantom. But this was only the beginning of this record-breaking show.
1: The show would go on to become the second longest-running show in the West End, and the longest-running show on Broadway, with over 10,000 performances. When the theater world had to halt due to the COVID-19 pandemic, The Phantom of the Opera had played 13,366 performances at the Majestic Theater, where it still plays.
0: While some of the technology involved in the show has adjusted for the times, the majority of the show, costumes and sets, for example, are exactly as they were on that crisp and beautiful night in January of
1: 1988. So, let's dive into the show itself.
0: So our story begins at the auction at the dilapidated Paris Opera House. They're auctioning off several different items, including a poster, um, the music box with the monkey playing the cymbals, and they finally come to the chandelier, which is lot 666. And they've wired it recently for the new electric light, uh, which they're hoping can be used to frighten away the ghosts of so many years before. So they turn it on and the overture starts and we begin our story. At that point, the dilapidated set starts to rise and fly off the set or the stage, revealing this beautiful set of um, the Paris Opera House from days gone by. Sheets covering pieces of the theater, the actual majestic theater, begin to get pulled and you see these beautiful statues and other things around the theater. Um, And the chandelier itself comes out over the audience and is hoisted up above the audience in the theater. It's really quite amazing. Then we're uh, brought to a rehearsal of a production of Hannibal. It's about 30 years ago, and the Opera de Populaire is doing a production of Hannibal. So they're rehearsing, and this is where we start to get a brief introduction of our characters. We meet Madame Giri, who is the ballet mistress. We meet her daughter, Meg. We're first introduced to Christine Daae. Who there are three men being who are walking around. One is the former owner, and two are the new owners. And the new owners are like Die as in the famous violinist. Yes, of course. Um, so that's happening. They when they get to a break, that's when the new owners are introduced by the old owners. They meet the tenor Pianji and the diva Carlotta, who is the soprano. Um, and they start chatting and doing their thing. Um, and that's when the managers, the new managers, ask Carlotta if she wouldn't mind entertaining them with the aria from the show they're working on.
1: So, of course, Carlotta, you know, is soaking and basking in the limelight and, oh, listen to how good I sing this. And while she's singing, a backdrop falls, almost hitting her. And she is freaked out and scared. And everyone in the company's like, oh, no, it's the. It's the opera ghost. It's the opera ghost. And then the new managers are like, what's an opera ghost?
0: Right. And they're, and the new uh, old manager's trying to just, you know, I, I don't want anything to do with this. You bought this. Let's move on. So while this is happening, a letter's delivered from the Phantom, and Madame Jury reads it. And the new managers are like, you're all insane. Um, and Madame Jury then announces perhaps... If that, the salary he's asking is too much, you can ask the de uh, Shawnee. Shawnee to pay. And they were like, we were hoping to make that announcement later, but I guess the cat's out of the bag. And then Christine realizes, oh, I know who that is. It's Rao. or childhood friends. Um,
1: well, so and at when, this,
0: oh, sorry. Go ahead.
1: I was going to say, at this point, uh, Carlotta's pissed. Yeah. Because she just about died. And no and, cares. and the new managers are like, it's okay, these things happen. And then that's when Carlotta goes into her hissy fit and says, for years you say that these things do happen. Well, until these things do not happen, this do not happen. And she storms off stage. And now the new managers are like, what, what are we going to do? We've sold out everything. So that's
0: when Madame Jury is like, Christine Dye can sing the part. And they're like, a chorus girl? And she's like, just give her a chance. So she comes out and she starts singing. And midway through the song, they're like, oh my gosh, it's amazing. So they do a quick change. And now we're at that night's performance of Hannibal, Christina singing beautifully. And, and these this boxes have, have drifted in. And one of those boxes is Raul.
1: And this is where Raul sees that it is his childhood uh, playmate in this role. And is so excited to see all of her success. So once Christine has had this beautiful opening debut, she goes off stage and she goes to her dressing room.
0: And the managers are taking Raul backstage. and He wants to meet Christine. He's like, I'm going to go see her. And the managers are like, well, we can introduce you to her. And Raul's like, no, no, no. I can do this myself.
1: So then while this is happening, Christine is... In the dressing room talking to Meg, her best friend. And Meg's like, you were so amazing. I didn't know you could do this. And this is where Christine confides in her best friend. It it was the work of my strange tutor, um, my angel of music. He's been teaching me all of this. And her friend's like, what do you mean, strange tutor? What are you talking about? And at this point, they're interrupted by, by Raul. So, you of know. course, Meg sneaks away, and Roul comes in.
0: And he says this childhood poem to her, because she doesn't know it's Roll at first, but he's saying this childhood poem to her, and she realizes it's him, and she's like, I'm so happy to see you, and I'm so happy to see you. And he's like, you truly have become an incredible singer, but now we're going to go out and celebrate. And Christine's like, I can't do that. You don't understand. Now, granted, she's an adult, and there are no rules. Like, Madame Jury... Or the company managers. None of them said, like, you can't go out and celebrate the opening night. But she's like, I can't go out. And he's like, pish posh. I'm getting my horses. Dress will be ready in five. He leaves.
1: And that's when you hear this eerie music that sounds faintly familiar start coming in. Kind of like a, an echo. Um, and Christine starts getting lulled, kind of hypnotized by this sound. And uh, we get going and there's this line, look in the, f- look at your face in the mirror, I am there inside.
0: Yes, yeah. And the Phantom's basically been insulting Raoul and saying, what do you, who does he think he is? You're mine. And when she looks in the mirror...
1: She sees the Phantom of the Opera.
0: And it's the coolest thing in the world because the mirror itself is a mirror. And then all of a sudden it switches to like that two-way mirror. Mm-hmm. And he pulls her in through, and, and Raoul can hear him l- lulling her with his um, that mantra I am your angel of music. And he's like, Who's in there? Nobody was in there when I was in there. Why is the door locked? She's taken in through the mirror.
1: And then the she's. The door's
0: unlocked. Raoul comes in. She's gone.
1: And this is when the phantom starts leading Christine down this elaborate labyrinth underneath the Paris Opera House through the catacombs. Of Paris and it's really cool to watch this on set because you really feel like you're going subterranean like like hundreds of stories below ground um, and it's really just breathtaking the way that this has been um, artfully choreographed to just travel down even though we're all in the same space then
0: we get to this fog-filled stage and they're on a boat and they're traveling down this boat, and they're singing to each other, and he's he's hypnotizing her, and she's and, singing to him.
1: And it's almost like her, him drawing the song out of her is creating this magic that's making this beautiful place just appear before them.
0: So we get to the Phantom's lair. He, uh-huh. you know, goes to his organ. He sings this beautiful song, uh, "Music of the Night," absolutely gorgeous. And as they wrap up that song, he reveals this this frame, this portrait with a uh, mannequin in it that's dressed up in a bridal gown, but it looks like Christine. And at one point, the mannequin juts out at her, and she faints. And he lays her into the boat with a cape over her, and she falls asleep, and the lights dim. And when they come up, Phantom is writing his music, and Christine's like, I think it was a dream. now no, I'm, I'm still here. And there was music, and there was a man, and she walks over to the Phantom And she pulls off his mask, but we don't see anything because he covers it real quick and he's like, damn you, curse you, oh, why? And he has like this weird like, I hate you, I love you, I hate you, I love you. And then it's like, I have to return you, they'll be wondering where you're at. So he takes her back. Now we're on the next day. And thus begins the many letters.
1: Well, before we get to the letters, this is where we get introduced to the character of Joseph Bouquet, where he's kind of That's right he's adding into the Oh the Opera Ghost, it got Christine and you know, if you're not careful the Opera Ghost is gonna kill you with his magical lasso. So
0: it should be noted that basically the cast is kinda like hanging out waiting for rehearsals to begin that day. And Joseph Bouquet is the fly master, the master of ropes essentially. And he's going around and, like, I don't want to say scaring, thrilling, meaning the ballet dancers. Well,
1: yeah, you know how every theater has its ghost stories. And
0: he's going around like, yellow parchment is his skin, a big black hole where a nose never grew. And, you know, he's really hyping this up. And that's when Madame Shiri appears. And she's like, Joseph Bouquet, hold your tongue. Um, And, you know, she chastises him and is like, you shouldn't talk about things you don't know about. And it's kind of one of those, if you're on Joseph Bouquet's side, you're like, it's a ghost story. But if you're Madame Giry, you know what she knows. It's like,
1: "Eh, you shouldn't speak about things you don't know about. And then this is when we start finding out that all the notes or these letters have appeared to various people in the company, including the managers. And
0: managers are told that their salary is overdue.
1: Mm-hmm. And that the Phantom basically has all these, like, lists of demands in order to use his space.
0: Right. Um, Pianji is too fat. Carlotta.
1: Is terrible.
0: Yep. And, um. And of they're, course. They're, they're, they all think it's each other writing it. And once they're all on stage, that's when Madame Jiri comes in with the, f- I think it's the fifth note. And they're like, oh, God in heaven. And she reads that and basically it says that Christine Dye is back. She's returned.
1: And she's going to play the lead in the next opera.
0: Uh, yep. And um, Carlotta will play the part of the page boy. The silent. silent role. Yep. Of course, this sends everybody into a
1: frenzy, and of course, to calm the panicky Carlotta, because we all know how divas are. Well, no, you are the best. We want you, so they sing "Prima Donna," basically the ultimate fluffer song for the soprano. Telling Um, her that
0: she's gonna be in the leading role, and Christine will play the page boy.
1: So then they do the basically a French farce opera. And it's full of folly. Um,
0: real quick, it should be noted that in the Phantom's instruction, the one in the letters, my salary's overdue, and don't forget to leave box five empty. That's his box. So they're putting on the opera.
1: They're putting on the opera, and of course Carlotta's in the lead, and Christine is the silent role. And they get going, and... You all of a sudden hear the phantom's voice just overtake the theater.
0: Did I not instruct that box five was to remain empty? And the lights flash and everything and everyone stops. And Christine says, he's here.
1: And of course, then Carl- Carlotta's like, well, who does this man think he is? I'm the lead here. We're going to continue on and I'm going to sing my song.
0: Well, and she says to Christine, your role is silent, little toad and the phantom goes toad madam perhaps it is you that is the toad
1: so when carlotta goes to start singing um
0: she sprays her throat she sprays her throat
1: out. to start singing but then um she goes to start singing and whenever she goes to inhale and start singing her higher notes she starts croaking like and a making toad. yeah like a toad <laughs> and so Everyone's kind of freaking out, and she's freaking out. She's like, oh my god, I can't sing. I, I need to leave. I need to get out of here. It's not safe for me. So then, this is when the manager...
0: curtain down, and the managers come out.
1: Yes, and the managers say, you know what? Uh, we're going to switch the roles around. We're going to bring Christine out to be the lead. But while we do that, let's go ahead and perform the ballet from... Act
0: 3. So, And we're going to come back to this ballet later on in the podcast because it's very interesting. But basically, it's like a shepherd's ballet. The ballet dancers play kind of shepherdesses or sheep. And then there's that one male principal dancer who's the one banging the pole uh, who plays the shepherd. While this is happening... You can feel the tension. Everything is crazy and chaotic. They're moving set pieces quickly.
1: Everyone's but, kind of scrambling, and they're like, oh, this isn't what we're supposed to be doing, but, but here we the lights are
0: flashing, and we're seeing weird shadows of people getting cast, and it's like something's amiss, and the music is getting more tense and accelerating, and all of a sudden, a body drops from the sky, having been hung. And it's Joseph Bouquet. And that's when everyone freaks out, and they panic, and they run, and Christina's scared and she runs and Raoul runs for Christine and they run and they run up to the roof of the opera house and and Christine's telling him it's not safe he's after me and no one's safe and you know I'm gonna be killed next blah blah blah. and then they they breathe and then they share this beautiful uh love song all I ask of you
1: and this is where Raoul's like you can count on me I'm here to help you with this you don't have to go through this alone and Christine although apprehensive at first realizes you're right i can trust you maybe you can save me from this thing that i've gotten into and then this is where
0: the f- they don't know but in the like the sculpture which is at the top of the proscenium of the majestic but specifically at the top of the roof the phantom's been hiding so he's heard everything so when they go back in the opera house the phantom kind of wounded sings a reprise of all I ask of you. And he's and he's like so it's, you know, it's going to be war.
1: And well, and he's he's ultimately jealous because he's like Christina's mine. She's my protege. She's I've taught her everything. How dare you love her when I loved her first and you're going to regret this.
0: So we come back to the opera house, the cast has finished their show and they're taking a bow and as they're taking a bow the chandelier falls. And I mean, it. This isn't like on stage. Ooh, a little chandelier. The the whole chandelier in the actual majestic theater falls out of the audience and swings onto the stage. Big spark, blackout.
1: Which End is one. which is basically the uh, the Phantom has taken his rage out on everyone by destroying this beautiful chandelier. So now we come back
0: to now we come to Act Two. It's a little bit later on, um, and they're having a party a masquerade, and there's a beautiful staircase. Uh, I would say it's probably from the lobby, and they're all singing about masquerade, it's fun, and that's when we learn that Raoul and Christine are now engaged, but it's a secret engagement. Christine's got the ring around her neck on a chain, um, and everyone's happy, they're like we haven't heard from the Phantom in so long, maybe he's finally gone, it's great, it's gonna be a great new year, you know, everyone's kind of in this state of bliss, and you know, it wouldn't be theater if it was happy, <laughs> so who should appear at the top as a skeleton but our good friend the phantom and he's like why do you all look so frightened managers why are you scared i have written you an opera don Juan triumphant and he's already assigned the roles carlotta will be this pianji will be this and he needs to lose weight it's not good for him and carlotta needs to learn how to act it's not going to be good enough for her just to stand and strut and things like that she's gonna have to learn how to act and Christine should return to my tutelage if she wants to continue to grow and everyone's like uh oh this is bad so he continues to make his way down the stairs and that's when he sees the ring and he grabs the ring and he looks at her and says your chains belong to me and he rips off the ring he throws like a flash bomb there's a huge burst of light and he disappears but then he reappears at the top of the stairs you know and everyone's like oh my gosh this is trouble.
1: So they begin rehearsal on Don Juan Triumphant, and the music is technically very difficult. That's insane. And so, of course, our, you know, prima donna and, you know, uh, tenor are very...
0: They're strong-minded. They have st-
1: Yes, they have very... They have strong opinions. They have some notes on the uh, the the opera...
0: So, there's a lick that Piangi's trying uh, to do, and he's not doing it right. And he keeps going back and forth with the music director. And the music director's like, You're missing this part where you're supposed to go up one more step, and you're not doing it. You're not doing it right. And Piangi says, No, no, no. I'm sure I'm doing it right. And the music director's like, No, no, no. And Carlotta says, I like the way that Piangi's doing it. It sounds better. And Madame Jerry bangs her sick and says, Madam, would you say those words in the presence of the composer? And Carlotta says, well, the composer isn't here, now is he? And Manager says, don't be so sure of that. And just then, the piano starts to play on its own. And it's playing the lick on its own. Um, and I just want to put this in here. At this point, during this transition, as we go to the graveyard, there's a beautiful, uh, I believe it's a violin um, solo that plays a do 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 you know. Yeah, well, and it's so... It's gorgeous.
1: Well, and what that's there for is... You see that, you know, Christine is obviously distressed. She's upset because she wants to be a singer. She studied for this, but she loves Raoul, and she sees that the phantom is getting out of control. So, of course, being a level headed woman, she goes, You know, the only person I can trust is my father. And since. Who was a violinist. And so she's like, I'm going to go to his grave and maybe if I pray to him, I'll get a sign on what I should do. And this is where the phantom takes advantage of Christine's nature. So while she's praying at her dad's grave, that's when all of a sudden the grave comes to life and she hears this song that is somewhat familiar and she's like, you know what, I can trust this. And this is when you start hearing, you know, Things kind of going... mantra
0: and everything that was lulling her back.
1: And hypnotizing her again, and she's getting sucked in, and then we see the phantom appear, but it's too late. Christine is already hypnotized by him, and then Raul appears and says, you're not going to get her like this. Christine, step away from him. And, of course, this invokes massive amount of rage and from gonna the And we're going to come back to
0: this scene again later on um, to explain particularly the difference between the stage and the screen version of this. But once Raul gets Christine safely away, um, the Phantom says, very well then, it is to be war. Cut back to the opera. And that's when, the opera house, and that's when um, Raul kind of corners Madame Giri and says, I think you know more than you're telling us. And she's like, please, I don't know anything. He's like, you have to tell me what you know. And that's where we learn that the Phantom was, I mean, he's a man. And that Madame Giri first saw him at basically a freak show. When he was a child. Because he had a deformed face. Mm-hmm. And she helped him escape and helped him hide out in the catacombs beneath the opera.
1: And this is where Madame Giri first started to notice his musical genius. Right.
0: And so she knows that he's basically this insane artist, but he's still human. And that's where Raoul comes up with this plan and realizes...
1: We have to catch him he's other- a man
0: he's vulnerable
1: yeah and we have to catch him and stop him otherwise christine will never be free
0: so he's basically says look here's what we're going to do here's the plan what we're going to do his opera christine's going to play the leading lady you are the bait essentially but he thinks he's got the upper hand but it's us who have the upper hand we're going to have guards there we're going to steal the doors he's going to be trapped like a rat we're going to keep box five empty he's going to show up we're gonna catch him, we're gonna kill him. It's gonna be great. We got a plan. It sounds foolproof. Christine's not quite on board. She's like, I can't do this, my nerves. Raul talks her into it. And thus, we come to Don Juan triumphant. As you hear the orchestra tuning up, you start to see guards come out into the theater and get posted at the doors and you hear the doors getting locked all around the theater. It's absolutely brilliant and the show begins
1: so the spot where we kind of jump to in the show is the point of no return where basically this is supposedly a song in the show like the opera that was written but also it is driving the plot of there's no return from what's about to happen in the phantom of the opera
0: so pianji's role is supposed to um be seduced by christine uh, who's kind of like a, um, a gypsy.
1: No, she's more like a uh, courtesan.
0: Okay, and, and, and you know, she's going to go and lay with him, you know, and, and, and it's Pianji's best friend that's going to arrange this. Well, Pianji retires to his bed, but he doesn't know that someone's lying in wait for him. So as the scene is set up and the friend is like, you know, the trap is set that's when the show changes because then you hear go away and it's like the actor who's the best friend is like that's that's not in the script
1: that's not Pianji
0: and we as they start to sing because Pianji's character is in this hood we don't know who it is but the voice is the phantom we know that and Christine as she sings and she's seducing him she puts her right arm up and it goes on to The the Phantom's face, and she realizes that it's the Phantom, and she's stricken with fear, but it's kind of like, we're on stage, you can't do anything, this is where we're at, and they're getting into the high point of the song, and everything is going, you know, super intense, and it's all building, and she rips off the um, hood, and along with it, the mask.
1: Uh And this, of course makes the pa- the panic inside the phantom just freak out. So he grabs her and well, leads well, her.
0: I, I'm sorry. I just, I want to say this moment, the the air is sucked out of the theater and you feel it. Like you see guards going to rush the stage. And everyone's like, no, 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 just wait, just wait, just wait. Nobody do anything right now. And I feel like that's their mistake. They could have taken him then, but they don't. And so it's just this moment of like, what's next? And your heart's beating fast and you're like, oh my gosh, What are we going to do? And the phantom sings the All I Ask of You Mm -hmm. as like a final plea. Um, And when he realizes that there's no escape, or so we think, he throws a flash bomb. They disappear, and all sorts of chaos ensues. All of a sudden, we see that Pyongyang's been strangled in the bed. Everyone's crying. There's a mass riot. You can hear people just storming out here, there, and everywhere. Mm
1: -hmm. And then... We're going down once more, down into the catacombs, down into the phantom's lair. And uh, Raul is, f- of course, the first in the lead, followed behind uh, a whole mob of people.
0: Now, Madame Jury cautioned Raul as he was heading down to keep your hand at the level of your eye. It's something that's repeated throughout the show. Keep your hand at the level of your eye. You, you have to remember, so far the two people that have been killed have been killed by a rope around the neck. So she warns him, keep your hand at the level of your eye. And he's going down. Phantom's dragging Christine, gets her to his lair, throws her in a wedding dress, and she's like, how many more people have to die for, you know, while well, you try to satisfy your lust for blood? And he's like, the he- same people who have criticized me for my lust of blood have also denied me the, lust, uh, the joys of the flesh. Mm-hmm. And he's, you know, so he's getting her ready to get married to him. And that's when Raul arrives. And the Phantom doesn't even see him. He senses him. So he's like, I think we have a guest. And he raises up this giant gate, this iron gate, to let him in. And Raul runs over to Christine and they're like, oh, I love you. I love you. Oh, you're safe. And the Phantom's like, did you really think I'd harm her? He lulls her or lulls him into this false sense of security, sneaks up behind him and slips a noose around his neck. And he says, keep your hand at the level of your eye. And he starts to hoist it up. And he looks at Christine and says, you have to make a choice. You can save your lover by marrying me or you send him to his death. The choice is yours.
1: And of course, Christine is like, nah, I ain't having that. So she's like, you know what? I am going to tell you what I really think. I love you as a mentor. I love the genius inside you but i do not love this man i don't love this hate that you hold inside you so no matter what i will never have that love for you but she
0: does pity him and i think she sees that he's never had affection before and so she sees the only option is to marry him so she goes to him and embraces and kisses him and this is like a triggering action for the Phantom, and he finally feels love for the first time, and he releases Raoul, and he tells them both, "Go, get out of here. Don't tell anyone what you see. Just go." And they leave, and you can hear this the mob coming down, um, and the Phantom starts up that music box that we saw at the beginning, and he's singing "Masquerade" to it. And then Christine appears, and he thinks, oh my gosh, maybe she changed her mind. Like, this is it. No, no. And it really is that moment, like, you know when you you know a story so well, and you think maybe this time it's going to turn out this way? It really is that moment. She's there to give him his ring back. She gives it back to him, and then she leaves. And you hear them sing their love song as they leave on the boat in the background. And we start to see, remember, there's that iron gate. And we start to see the mob climbing down it. And the phantom sees him coming, sits in this chair, covers himself with a cape. And the first person to come under the gate is...
1: Meg. Meg.
0: And she's looking around and she sees the chair with a cape that looks like it's covering someone. And she goes to it and she pulls the cape off. And there's no one there, but there's a mask. And we're going to talk about this scene later on, but she grabs the mask, she pulls it to herself, and then she holds it out to the audience.
1: Everything goes dark except for one solitary spotlight.
0: And that's the end of the show. And so that's the synopsis of Phantom of the Opera. So let's go ahead and discuss some stuff about the show. So let's go ahead and discuss some of the stuff about the show that we wanted to touch on. Uh, The first thing I want to touch on, um, some of the technology in the show that's changed, particularly the boat. So a fun fact about the boat in this show is it's not on a track. With a lot of shows, you can see the tracks of the set pieces running on. Um, It's not on a track. Um, It's actually controlled by a radio. And what's interesting about this is... You know, as, as cell phone technology has grown, as uh, Midtown itself has grown, they've actually had to change the radio frequency to help make sure that the boat can, can be controlled and do what it needs to do. Um, and I think that's pretty cool to see because they can basically do that scene with that prop anywhere. When they, uh, when James Corden did the Tony Awards and he did that scene, you know, from the Phantom, that was the boat from the Phantom. They just it's like an RC car, you know? Um, so I thought that was a really cool piece of the technology that's um,
1: been updated.
0: Yeah, that's that's traveled from the eighties now, which man doesn't seem like the eighties were that long ago. But
1: <laughs> right, well, and something kind of jumping off of that is the costumes. Yes, because the costumes have stayed true to their their original design, um, but these costumes are super ornate and super. Detailed. The bead work. The bead work is just stunning. And I've seen some of the ways that they've had to... That they do this this intricate beading. And it is fascinating.
0: A fun fact about this. So we're currently recording here in Salt Lake City. When Phantom of the Opera goes on tour... Um, you know, when, it, when a show goes on tour and it rolls into a city... Most cities can do repairs there on the spot for the tour. When Phantom of the Opera goes on tour... If there's a repair needed on a costume, that city can't do that repair. That costume actually has to be sent back to New York to a special warehouse that will actually repair that. They have people specially trained just for Phantom of the Opera costumes. Mainly with that beading that you were talking about. Um, you wouldn't know it, but like, if you look at Carlotta's dress from Hannibal, it's practically all beading.
1: Yeah, if you ever get the opportunity to see one of the costume pieces up close... You would never believe how detailed it is, considering how far away some of the audience is.
0: I mean, this show, that that's the name of the game, is Details. Um, we've been privileged to know, to, to get a tour of the show, and one of the things that I've always, I still am amazed about, is the, um, the Phantom and his disfigurement. Uh, I thought, like, okay, he's got the mask on, and then he, you know, they just kind of, muckied up his face, we'll say. No, there's like three different layers.
1: Yeah, that it's, they put a, on it's that. a, it's a, it's pros- a, there's a three different prosthetic pieces.
0: Yeah, and I was like, whoa, like, you know, for something we see, we really see this, you know, uh, from Don Juan Triumphant on, he doesn't really put the mask on again. Yeah, he doesn't put the mask on after she rips it off in Don Juan Triumphant.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, so, you know, for that, I'll say fifteen twenty minutes of the show, they put that much level of detail. It's it's amazing. Um, and then if you if you haven't seen the show yet, I hope you get to see the show. The number of wigs, yes, and the styles of wigs. We go from doing Hannibal, which is like I think biblical, Egyptian kind of uh, show, to a French Moliere esque opera with these giant towering powder wigs, to Don Juan triumphant, which is kind of Spanish gypsy kind of thing, you know.
1: And with those wigs, they are all custom-made for the person who's wearing them.
0: It's very important to note. And not just the wigs, but back to what you were saying about the costumes. And this is typical of a lot of Broadway shows, but this one in particular. Every costume is made for that particular actor. So when the actor leaves the show, kind of the costumes go with it. Um, All the swings and everything, they have their own set of costumes. And I mean, that's a huge, <laughs> that's a lot of stuff, you know, for a cast that size. But it's all custom made for that individual person because it has to look a certain way. And it's... It has to fit like a glove. It's amazing. I want to come back, and I told you we'd come back to this, to the ballet from Act 3 um, during the French uh, opera that they were doing uh, where Joseph Bouquet is killed. And the reason why I want to come back to this is this is just such a art. I mean, beautifully articulated, perfectly staged and directed part of the show. So
1: well, it, it is. It is one of the most like, uh,
0: like. It's aesthetically pleasing in the story, and it just well.
1: It's a- it's a uh, the word I want to use is synergy, but that's not the word I want. Where everything, it's like the quintessential example of what foreshadowing yeah, is.
0: Yeah, it, it encapsulates all your senses. Everything is firing on all pistons. And when when it finally, you know, reaches its climax, everything's heightened. And, and you, oh, it's, anyway, let me tell you about it. So, um, in the midst of all this chaos where they're switching leads, you know, from Carlotta to Christine, and they're doing this ballet, like I said, it's like a shepherd ballet, where you've got the main guy being the shepherd, the main ballet dancer with the pole. And then the chorus girls are kind of the shepherdesses or sheep. Um, and they're dancing. These girls have these hoops. Um, and they're kind of like half hoops, but they have these hoops that they're holding up over their head. And they,
1: and they have, like, springtime flowers and... Right. you know, And they're dancing with
0: it. And the music starts slow, but as it picks up pace, that's when we start to see in the shadows two men backstage... You can see in these flashes there could be a struggle. The girls are clearly uneasy and they're getting spooked. But as everything is accelerating, these girls start to put these hoops around the man. Like they lay it over him and it falls to the ground.
1: Um, Well, and I think also playing into that, like the ballet dancers are literally just like sheep. They're being scared. There's, you know, what scares sheep? Usually a wolf.
0: Exactly. Yes, yes. And so you've got that happening. They're putting these hoops around him. And when the final hoop hits the ground, that's when the music seems to be spiraling out of control. And that's when Joseph Bouquet's body falls from the sky, hung by a noose. And it's just like this, oh my God moment, you know. It, it was brilliantly written, brilliantly staged, everything. It was executed on such a high level. Um, that's truly theatrically, so, uh, theatrical storytelling at its best. Um, I wanted to go back to the graveyard scene now because I did mention when we were doing the recap, um, we would talk about how this is different from the movie to the stage version. So the movie, when Raoul's there and he confronts the Phantom, they have a sword fight. Ooh, Gerard Butler and what's-his-name fighting. Great. Well, they don't sword fight in the uh, musical, at least not that I can remember. It's been several years since we've seen it, but to my knowledge... I don't remember a sword fight. What I do remember though is Raul goes and grabs Christine and the Phantom is up on top of her father's grave and he's shooting fireballs at her and he's lulling him a little, you know, cut step one step closer, you know, cause he's just out of range. Now I know fireballs doesn't sound impressive, but here's the thing. If you are at a certain point in the orchestra or even the mezzanine as he's shooting these fireballs, you are feeling these fireballs. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when finally he gets her, when Raul gets Christine away and the phantom is like, and he says, fine, it is to be war between us. And he says this line and he brings his arms up and the stage, like six feet high flames come out of the stage. Just like engulfed in flames. And you could be in the back row of the balcony and you feel this stuff. If it's a hot summer day, bad news for you. If it's winter, you're going to feel great. (laughs) <laughs> and it's incredible because it's just another element to me that breaks the fourth wall for the show. You know, we've already had where everything outside the proscenium was covered with drapes and they've pulled that away. We've got the chandelier coming in and out. You know, we've had the guards later on, they're going to come out and guard the doors. Well, and that would
1: be like another time that they are going to break the fourth wall is when the guards are actually in the audience. Yep. That and they're going to guard the actual theater.
0: The shot that's fired, because um, we didn't mention this in the recap, we should have, before he disappears, he goes, uh, he grabs Christine, throws a flash bomb, and he goes, am I here, am I here, am I here? And then he pokes his head out and goes, am I here? And a guard shoots. And, you know, and it's from the audience. It's from the audience in the theater. Um, So you don't, you feel less like you're watching the show as an audience member and you feel more like, I, my role is the audience member. Of, I, yeah, I, like
1: is, I am playing the role of audience member number whatever.
0: Exactly. In
1: the Phantom of the Opera.
0: Now, I'm a, a music nerd. And I got to talk about the music for this. Um, I was thinking about this when I was driving around today. I, every time we see the show, I have to pinch myself a little. Because I always think, there's no way that that's a live pit there's no way that's a live orchestra down there folks if you don't know everything you hear on broadway is live now once in a while they sneak in a dance track and that's just for i mean safety or continuity, continuity. but 99 percent of the time what you are hearing it's live there's no like minus track for annie or something you know it is absolutely incredible that there's a group of people out there that make that music i mean it is there's nothing like it. I can't think of another show like it. You, you hear that music and you automatically know what it is and the way that it comes out. it doesn't sound like it's you know kudos to the mix engineer. It doesn't sound like it's coming just from one spot, but it's just perfection. Um, and I cannot wait to hear that again. I'm looking forward to being able to hear that like I said, that violin part as they go into the uh, the, the the graveyard. Oh mm-hmm. and yeah. I can't ooh and ah over it enough.
1: The other, uh, the last element I kind of want to touch on in this is the use of lighting. Yeah And how lighting helps, like, progress the story. Um, It's told in a lot of different ways, and it also is matched and mirrored by um, the marketing, the costumes, and just everything about the show is mirrored, and I really think that the lighting really plays that into that the most. Um, You have, you know, the different shadows that we've talked about. Um, In the beginning, when they start out, it's almost like it's in a musky, like, kind of like, dirty, like, air. Yeah. And then as, and it's dark, and it's dingy, and then when we go up to rehearsal, everything's bright and refreshed, and the lighting really reflects that.
0: Yep. And I... I want to say the, the use of shadows is brilliantly executed because shadows can be something dangerous when it comes to theater. You don't want to put too much shadow on an actor because, you know, it's all about seeing the face and the facial expressions. It is the right amount of shadow. You don't lose anything. There's no communication loss from the actor to the audience. But you get that perfect um, feeling, that ambiance that you're expecting. Um, two things I want to mention about that is the Phantom is, I, I'm, I'm going to kick myself if I'm wrong, but I'm, I'm thinking through the show in my head right now. The Phantom is never in shadowed light. His costume creates shadows. I'm thinking about like when he's at his organ, it's pretty well lit. Um... Yeah, I mean, obviously, he's probably in a spotlight or what have you, but, um, you know, it's very rare that he's in the same shadow, let's say, as the person I'm thinking of is Madame Giry. Um Madame Giri not only is kept in a lot of shadow light when she's on stage, but Madame Giri never makes an entrance in light, if that makes sense. She comes out of shadows. She just, like, appears from the darkness. You know, if that makes any sense. We don't just, like, come up and, oh, Madame Giri She's dressed in all black, and she appears out of the shadows. When she has the note, when she creeps up on Joseph Bouquet, when Raoul finds her to ask her about the Phantom, she's always coming from out of the shadows. Well, And,
1: and that's where I would even go as far as to say you can almost see the match that's made there because the Phantom also is always coming out of the shadows. You're
0: leading to my theory where... I'm just going to put this out in the universe, okay? Now, this is just a theory. I have no proof of it. But I'm just saying, I've seen the show now 11 times. I think you've seen it, six? Um, We never meet Meg's dad. We know that Madame Jerry is Meg's mom. But we never meet Meg's dad. And we know that Madame Jerry has a soft place in her heart for the Phantom. I'm just putting this out there. Maybe... Meg is Madame Jury, the phantom's child.
1: Well, and I think that that could also play into the theory of, like, I think because he's a musical genius and he's a narcissist, that's why he thinks he can't have love unless he gets it from the apple of his eye. And so once he's achieved a conquest, it's like he completely forgets about it. Which is why, if that would have happened... Then it would have been like, oh, Madame Jury, uh, well, uh, that, I'm over it. And then as soon as Christine comes into the, the frame, it's like, oh, I have a new protege. I have a new, you know, obsession. And that's the only thing that matters. He could also
0: have a strange understanding of love because, I mean, she found it when he was a child. He may not understand what love is. And so it could be, I mean, I'm not a psychologist. I'm not going to pretend to be one, but yeah. Uh, I want to us back to lighting though, because one of the cool lighting effects that I absolutely love, um, when they're rehearsing Don, uh, Don Juan Triumphant, and then we talked about the rehearsal where uh, Carlotta and Piange are making fun of the composer, mm-hmm. that whole scene, the way it's lit, you feel like you're watching an old newsreel from like the turn of the century. Mm-hmm. The colors and the, and, and, the, and the shading that's used, it looks like a, a newspaper clipping coming to life. It's incredible.
1: Well, and I think that uh, the thing that I like about that is I feel like it kind of plays that this is from Raoul's um, perspective, because he's kind of the one who leads us into this uh, from the beginning, and that's when we go bright into color, and then as we start moving towards the end and the phantom's murderous rage starts coming out, and the fire and the heat, everything starts shifting from being very bright and poppy to these reds and this dark and we're also starting to fade into this like old-timey feeling because i feel like it's you know we're we're moving with raul's mind as he's recapping this story you know that's interesting that you
0: say that because Raul's is at at the top and the bottom of the show raul's there he buys the music box at the top of the show and he's in his elder years and we want to think about this is this is the story of the phantom and christine there's no doubt but we, I feel like, are lulled into the sense that this is the story from their point of view. And I'm sorry, this is a story entirely told by Raoul. hmm is always right around the corner, and it's if it were from Christine's point of view, I think it would be in a different sense. I don't think she would look as naive as she is.
1: Well, and I think that's also why the Phantom appears like such a heartless monster.
0: Exactly. And so you can see that that Raul, this, this whole story is... is is the narrative is from Raul. And I think that's lost on a lot of people all the time. They get stuck on the Phantom and Christine, and it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. We're looking at it through this lens. Don't go over on this lens. You don't have that perspective yet. Um, the last thing we're going to say about lighting, and this is the cool thing, um, Don Juan Triumphant. So we start in this really dark, burgundy, kind of brownish-red set, you know, it, it, you get the... you. Your skin kind of crawls. You get that it's disgusting and dirty and vile, you know. It has that essence of it. As the scene progresses, you know, and the Phantom arrives, Piange's been killed, and they're singing their song past the point of no return. There's less brown, and there's more red, and more fiery red, and it feels like everything's just getting hotter and and more passionate. And I'm not trying to say that in a sexy way, but just... You know, like that red, that danger, you know? Mm -hmm. And um, it just gets this deeper, deeper red. And what I I love is it's... This is the high point of the Phantom's madness, right? He's killed Joseph Bouquet. And that was a crime, I'll say, of passion. Mm -hmm. He was reacting to losing love. Pianji, though, was like in t- calculated yeah and um that for me that premeditation makes it madness and you know you've heard people say before i was just so blind with rage i just saw red and that's what i feel like is happening like he sees christine there he knows that something's going on he just gets blind with rage and he just goes for it you know um And it's just this powerful use of that color. Um, Finally, with lighting, we got to give a shout out to a spot up on the show. And so this is what we told you we'd come back to. The final end of the show. Meg crawls under the gate. She, (coughs) excuse me, she sees the chair with the cape draped over it. And as she approaches the chair, the lights sort of, they, they dim slightly, just slightly. It's not a dark stage at all. Just dim a little bit so that your focus is on the front where Meg Meg and the chair are versus in the back. And she pulls the cape away. And the minute she pulls the cape away, the light's cut to like half on stage. And the spot hits the mask. And the spot couldn't be bigger than maybe like a coffee cup or a bowl, right? So from the back of the theater, bam on that. And it hits it every time. It doesn't like, oh, oh. I missed it and I got to scoot over a little bit. No, it hits it dead on. Um, And she grabs it. And the minute she touches it, that's when the lights kind of go out on stage. So we just see Meg in this mask and she pulls this mask towards her. And this is where I think Meg is his daughter because it's like, you know, she's pulling it towards her like my father. But then when she holds it out to the audience, that's when the lights go out on Meg and all you see is the spot on this mask. And it's like, whoever is operating that spot up there is making their money in tenfold. Uh, it's incredible. So shout out to that spot up there. So this show's t- the show's title role has created some history of its own. Howard Mulligan, who played the Phantom, played him for over 10 years. Uh, from 1999 to 2009, making him the longest-running phantom on Broadway.
1: Norm Lewis made history becoming the first person of color to command the role back in 2014. This was made even more special by his leading lady being an actress he had previously played opposite of in a show that played just a few blocks away. I'm speaking of Disney's Little Mermaid, where Ciara, uh, sorry, Sierra Bajas originated the role of Ariel, with Norm Lewis playing her father, King Triton.
0: So let's talk about the impact of the show. Uh, uh, that th- Let's talk about the impact the show's had on theater uh, and its history. One of the things is this show is one of the crown jewels in the Macintosh mega musical crown. You know, mm-hmm. Cameron Macintosh brought shows such as Miss Saigon and Les Mis over. This has got to be, if not the crown jewel, well, one of I,
1: them. I feel like this is kind of where this whole idea of like the blockbuster musical Really, just started to like dig its claws in.
0: Yeah, this with cats and everything. This is this is really where where it took off. Um, as we mentioned, it is the longest running show on Broadway, and it will continue being the longest running show. We're gonna, it's gonna reopen. Um, and even though it opened in 1988, I it's it's still fresh. It's, it's still yeah, relevant. They don't have to change anything. Um, though I do want to say one thing about Norm Lewis. He might. be by far be my favorite Mm phantom he didn't change lines in the show at all he just changed inflection exactly a little inflection on this word or that word and suddenly the whole scene was different and i was absolutely blown away by it i've seen several managers actors who've come in to play the managers and the manager's role is really to act as the comedic release you can't have tension and dark 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 the whole time and there have been a few that I'm like, oh my gosh, you were so good at this. The Art of Subtlety is your mastery. You were fabulous.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, and I think that one of the, the biggest things that uh, Phantom has done for at least an American theater audience is that it brings new people to the theater every single day. If you have one day only to go to New York City.
0: You're going to go to Phantom. And
1: you can only see one show, you're probably going to go see Phantom because it has the lowest price on Broadway. And it's like, it's also like one of the biggest heavy hitters. So it's like, I'm going to go see that Sure Thing, that Broadway experience. I'm going to go see Phantom. Everyone
0: knows Phantom. And I mean, prior to Hamilton, I think the biggest blockbuster on Broadway was Wicked. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, those are going to be really hard tickets to get. And they're, I mean, Hamilton, good luck. Um, But they're also very expensive. Phantom is a show that everyone knows and everyone can share that experience. Um, I remember... Trevor Nunn, who directed um, Cats, as well as, uh, oh man, I think it was Andrew Lloyd Webber. Both of them were saying, the beauty of Cats is that it spans a generational gap. You know, grandma and mom and daughter can go to the show and each one will get something different out of it. I feel like that stands true with The Phantom now, you know. And you don't have to be a theater lover to go see the show and enjoy it, because if you You may not like opera, which most of the songs are opera-esque. That's fine. You don't have to like love stories. That's fine. There's action. And if you're not a big theater person, just enjoy the amazing sets that are going on. The chandelier crashing or things like that.
1: Well, and I think the thing about it is even if you're not an opera lover, it's not quite opera. So it lets you into that world without committing to like full-on opera. Um, And then the other thing with that is, oh my gosh, I forgot what I was going to say.
0: I'm going to pick up then and say, you know, with it being such a well-known story and such a welcoming thing, it spans that language and nationality gap. I can think of numerous times we've gone and the theater has been half filled with... Uh, people from all over the world and they may not speak the language but they know exactly what's going on because they know that story
1: well and this story has been around for a very long time i mean it was first a book and then it had two different uh, motion picture adaptations you know and so it's a it's it's kind of in the same family as romeo and juliet it's a story that we've all known for a long time exactly
0: and it gives people that common show and common experience everybody can go see Phantom and everybody's going to get... I mean, they'll get something different out of it, but we can all, like, you know, we're all going to ooh and ah, the chandelier falling. We're all going to swoon when he sings music of the night. And like I said, that moment where she rips off the hood and Don Juan Triumph that the air just gets sucked out of the theater. We're all on the edge of our seat. We're all sharing that experience. Um, it's also a story of misfits. No one in this show is an angel. No one is perfect which I think makes all the characters relatable. I've never met someone that I'm like, you are perfect. You, you know, heaven is the place for you. Everyone's got a blemish of some sort on their life. And I feel like even the noblest of intentions in this show, it, you're still at its worst. I mean, you can take like a redeeming character, let's say like Raoul. Well, he puts his fiance up as bait in a dangerous situation. Well, who's, who's, whose needs are being serviced by this? He could easily just take Christine and leave. Why does he want to stick around?
1: Yeah, the Phantom's not gonna follow him.
0: He's doing it pure <laughs> out of out of machoism. I Machismoism. To
1: defeat,
0: yeah, I just want to defeat uh, uh, I just wanna defeat the Phantom because he's trying to hit on my woman. Smash the patriarchy, get over yourself, you know? Um, Madame Giri, who again, she does she's done mostly good, but is she just maybe told more people Is she was a little more open about things? If she did a little bit more to help control him, they may not be in the situation that they're in.
1: Well, and I think like really at its core of the story, it's about love. It's about all of us wanting love. It's all about, it's about us receiving love. And the thing that I really read from it is it's not even about love in the romantic sense. It's about, you know, love and acceptance in um, a lot of different ways that many of us like flock to the theater community for.
0: Yeah. So we should talk about if the show is still relevant, and I mean, I th- I, I feel like that's a, a an odd question to ask because of course it's still relevant, you know, um, and I think on the basis it's uh, relevant because human instinct doesn't change, and this show shows that um, the Phantom has always been scorned and mistreated and hated, you know. And he can't trust people. He doesn't change. Even when Christine hasn't posed a threat to him, he's still threatened by her. He won't mm-hmm. let her get close to her, he won't open up to her. He creates a situation he creates a situation where everyone's against him. People don't change. The same thing with Raul. You know, like I said, why did he not just take Christine and leave? Why did he have to put her up as bait? Kind of like when they were kids you know um i think in that sense it's definitely a relevant show because we're going to keep coming back to it and we're going to relate to those things we're going to see the stuff the other thing is um i hadn't had this thought or this experience until we saw mean girls but let's be real we've all been a mean girl at some time think about the 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 meanness and the hatred that's passed along in this show. And everyone can relate to that point where we've cast someone out because they were different. Mm -hmm. Or we haven't shown someone the love or kindness we should have. And that exists in the show. And on that basis, we can relate to it. So yeah, it's still still relatable. It's still relevant.
1: Uh So, finally, As promised, we wanted to share some of our own personal stories about experiencing this show. So, like I
0: said, we've seen the show between the two of us about 11 times. My first time was back in 1996.
1: And mine was in 2009. So I have a few more
0: stories, I think,
1: than you (laughs) do. Just a couple.
0: This was my first Broadway show ever. This is the show that got me hooked on theater. Uh, My mom... Lauren Cortez. Hi, Mom. She actually raised me on show tunes and country music. And she would actually sing Phantom of the Opera to me to put me to sleep. I had been hearing Phantom since I was born. I was born in 88, everybody, by the way. woop woop. So I've known this show my entire life. My mom took us to New York in 1996, and this was the first show that we saw. My mom got us tickets, 7th Row Center. I mean, primo. And if you had asked me, little, you know, what was I, seven years old, me, then, what was the show about? I would tell you it's a wonderful story about a chandelier that goes up and down. Because that's all I watched during that show. Um, after the show, we went, my mom taught us how to stage door, and we went backstage, which is up an alley. And I don't remember any of the cast But I do remember my brother and I being bored and wanting to leave and my mom having flagged down the actor that played Raul and begging him to sing to her and he sang All I Ask of You to my mom so he's you know serenading her right by this dumpster in an alleyway in New York and my brother Going
1: above and beyond the job requirements. And my
0: brother and I are like you know what, I'm sure we'll find our way. We can get a piece of pizza or find the Port Authority buses and we'll find something. Um, But you know, that was my first show, and it's, it stuck with me. Um, so thanks, Mom. Uh, flash forward um, to 2009? 10? 10. You had just, yeah, the year after you graduated. It was your second trip to New York.
1: Okay. And believe <laughs> we were year.
0: stage drawing.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh-huh.
0: And who did you meet, Hope? Um,
1: I met the uh, makeup artist for the Phantom. Um, she's an amazing lady. Uh, she gave me a lot of great mentoring tips um, because you know to kind of help me with my career. Um, and she let us do a backstage tour, and um, really just boosted my confidence in knowing that. I could make a viable career out of doing this. So it was really awesome. She was a sweet, wonderful person. um, And that was one of my absolute favorite experiences. So
0: shout out to Thelma. (laughs) She, yeah, she was an incredible woman. It was amazing. The kindness she showed was incredible. I have a great humorous story. So we were, stage joined once again. um, Many years ago, I think it was like 2010, But anyone who's been out to New York and has done this, they'll know that the Golden, the Majestic, and the Jacobs Theater all share an alley in New York. Um, But it also shares an alleyway with uh, a hotel that's right there. Well, if you walk up the hotel alley, you'll get to a giant gray steel security door, and that's through that door is where the stage doors are. Well... Knowing that, we walked up the alley. We waited outside the great stage door. They led us back into the alley and we waited by the majestic stage door. We're doing our thing. La, la, la. It's a particularly humid summer day in New York. And <laughs> I am the kind of guy that I could be doing the New York Times crossword in Nome, Alaska, and I'd break a sweat. So I'm perspiring. But I'm also kind of snazzed up because it's a theater. You should always dress up for the Broadway theater. We don't have enough reasons to dress up today, but dang it. The theater is one of them. And I've got my backpack. And because I'm sweating, I, I basically at this point look like I've just showered. Got the super curly hair going on. It's great. And I don't remember what you were doing. You were talking to someone um but we
1: lo- Oh no, I was slinking away cuz I felt uh nervous to be down the alleyway when no one else was down there. So
0: we finally leave and at the end of the hotel alleyway out there on 45th Street.
1: Well, and I was already waiting there for you cuz I was like I don't I'm, I'm uncomfortable, I'm awkward.
0: They've got these, you know, crowd barriers and um Avenue Key was so playing at the Golden Theater. And I'm walking down and all of a sudden these people start freaking out. Oh, someone's coming, someone's coming, oh! And I get to the end of this hotel alleyway where all these fans are waiting for Avenue Q people. And they start pushing their programs in my, you know, at me with pens. And I'm just like, all right. So I start signing programs. I'm signing playbills for Avenue Q. Going along the line, doing my thing. And I'm thinking, how? How big of a fan can you be if you don't, you know, Avenue Q is not one of those shows where there are, you know, tons of wigs and makeup. How do you not recognize that I wasn't in the show? So I had to be like 11 or 12 playbills in signing. And finally, and I've taken a few pictures too. Finally, someone pipes up and goes, excuse me, so who were you on the show? And I was signing a playbill. And I went, oh, I wasn't in the show. And then I just walked away. <laughs> So if anyone out there is listening and you happen to have my autograph, thank you. You know, that's, that's a great one. The last one I want to talk about. Um, so I got my degree in musical theater at the University of Utah and the head of their program there is Denny Berry, who is the assistant choreographer from the original production of Phantom of the Opera. She's actually still with the company. She's, um, anytime they mount a new production of Phantom of the Opera, She's there. She's she's there with the choreography. Um, So shout out to Denny Berry. Um, So having this connection, uh, the last time we were in New York before the shutdown in 2019, Denny invited uh, Hope and I to come sit in on a rehearsal, on a day rehearsal, as they were uh, just tuning up some stuff. I think the Pianji was newer. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was just fun to see. They were working the cape. They were working the cape, so um, <laughs> during Hannibal, during that first scene with Hannibal, when Pianji comes in, he has a cape, they were working the cape, and it was fun to watch them work. It was fun to watch a Broadway show, like how that works, you know, because a lot of people, I think, think, you know, it's Broadway, and it's, I don't know, they must rehearse with sparklers, or gold bars, or something. and I'm like, oh my gosh, this is no different than the regional house I work at, or seeing the... Broadway tour come through, or even in college. Like, they're, they're table working. This is great. The cast was amazing. Um, everybody was a hoot. I love when people started making up their own
1: words. <laughs> I think Denny started that in the rehearsal. We what saw was it Knocked Down, down the, the Elephant's Door. door we're, we're singing dance.
0: and we're dancing. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, sure, that's it. And what was great <laughs> is that night we actually went and saw the show. And so we see that scene and I'm like, oh, geez. Chuckle, chuckle. <laughs> But it was truly uh, a fantastic experience. A
1: phantom-tastic.
0: Oh, stop. (laughs) So thank you, Denny, for that opportunity. I really appreciate it. Um, Oh, actually, I thought of one other memory um, that I'll share. So I had the fortune of, in college singing for the music director for the show, Kristen Blodgett. And she's actually a common music director that Andrew Lloyd Webber uses. Um, And in my class, everybody was singing their great audition stuff and putting their best work up there. And I got up and I I didn't know what to sing. And I was like, I probably should do something different. I I don't have If I Love You from Carousel. Um, I'm a character actor. And so I was like... I'm going to sing something from Shrek. Because I'm watching the and she's a brilliant woman and she's nice as can be. Not what yeah. I expected from a Broadway per- person. Nice as can be. And she's being very honest with people, being very particular. And I'm like, the song that I want to sing, I know she's going to eat me alive for. So I was like, well, I got nothing to lose. So I sing my Shrek. Uh, oh, no. Oh, let me back up. I'm sorry. No, I, I'm telling the story wrong. Oh, I'm blacking out don't get old kids i actually <laughs> what i sang for her the, the the ballsy thing i did is i sang king herod's song from jesus christ superstar which she had mm-hmm. music directed
1: that's right
0: that's and i was right. like might as well go bigger, or go home ain't like i'm getting a job anytime soon <laughs> so i sing the song for her i actually botch up the line in front of her <laughs> yeah you did sorry but i i didn't i just i sold it and when i finish she looks at everyone and goes did you all catch that? And I'm like, oh, God, here it comes. And she's like, he messed up the words, and he just kept going. That's exactly what we are supposed to do. Sell it. What else do you have? I was the first person that she asked, what else do you have? That's when I pulled out this Shrek. And she's like, interesting Shrek. Let's hear that. Yeah. So I sing my Shrek number. Um, she gave me high praise again. And I was like, oh, my gosh, this is amazing. Kristen Blanche, the music director from Phantom of the Opera, is praising me. Oh, Cool. So cut to the next year. We're stage drawing like you do. And Kristen Blodgett was conducting that night, which was amazing. Um, and she walks out of that gray security door. She's walking down the street, coming to those gray barriers,
1: and I'm waving at her. And she kind of, like, looks forward like she can't tell who I am. Also, it should be noted, you're wearing a green, green shirt. shirt. <laughs> so she,
0: you know, she's doing this, I don't know, And then it hits her, and you would have thought she yelled my name, but no. What did she yell down the alley? Shrek! And I'm just like, oh god, okay, she remembers me. And everyone looks at me like, is she calling you fat? And I'm just like, no, get out of here. This is my own little moment. Couldn't have been nicer. Um, Shout out to Kristen Blodgett. Uh, Seriously, all my love to you. You really did so much to help motivate me through college and beyond. Um, So, yeah, some fun stories from our, our time with Phantom, and I'm looking forward to uh, many more. And as things begin to return to normal and the theater world starts to turn its lights back on, we, we look forward to returning to see this show again.
1: And you'll be able to catch The Phantom of the Opera eight times a week at the Majestic Theater located at 245 West 44th Street in New York City, hopefully starting this fall.
0: So until next time, I'm Andrew Cortez. And
1: I'm Hope Bird.
0: Reminding you to turn off your cell phones.
1: Unwrap your candies.
0: And keep talking about the theater.
1: In a stage whisper. Thank you. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review, like, and subscribe.
0: You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Stage Whisper Pod,
1: And feel free to reach out to us with your comments and personal stories at stagewhisperpod at gmail.com.
0: Our theme song is Music for Wildlife by Fox. Other music on this episode provided by William Ross Chernoff's Nomads, Quantum Jazz, Jazzar, and Billy Murray.